Thanks for checking out the Candeo podcast. To learn more about us, visit us at candeochurch.com. Well, good morning, Candeo family. As always, it's great to be with you. If you have a Bible, I would love for you to join me this morning in Daniel chapter 3. So we pick up with that chapter in our Daniel series. Um, I found in life, right, that there are moments when we have to pick a side, right? And it's in those moments when you have to pick a side that often your true colors get revealed. Where like what really matters most to you becomes clear to everybody. Uh, Today in Daniel 3, that moment comes for Daniel's three friends. And in one way or another, that moment's going to come for each of us. There's going to be a day where you're going to have to pick a side. And the question that this this text is going to ask of us is when you have to pick a side, especially like when it's all on the line, what side will you pick? No matter what it costs you. That's the question of Daniel 3. When you have to pick a side, whose side will you pick? Uh, Last week in Daniel 2, if you were here, you remember this, right? King Nebuchadnezzar was troubled by a dream that was on repeat in his mind. It was was giving him sleepless nights. And so uh, he's got this vision in his dreams. And and what he's he's envisioned, what what he's seeing in his dream is this colossal statue, this huge statue that's got four, five parts to it. That, that's got this gold head. It's got this silver, like, arms and chest. It's bronze stomach and thighs, legs of iron, and then feet of partly iron, partly clay. And while he's looking at this statue in his dream, he sees this gigantic stone whose origins is not in human hands. But this gigantic stone comes in and hits this statue at the feet and crushes the whole thing. All of it comes tumbling down, gets broken down into small bits, becomes like powder, and then the wind eventually comes and just blows the whole thing away. And then that stone that he's looking at, then that stone all of a sudden becomes this gigantic mountain that fills the whole earth. That's the dream that he has. And Daniel's the one, not on his own wisdom, but in the wisdom that God gives him, is the one who comes in, explains to King Nebuchadnezzar what the dream means. He says the dream represents, this this statue represents kind of a succession of kingdoms after yours that will come, but eventually God is going to do something. He's going to establish a kingdom that will last forever. And on hearing this, this is how chapter two ends. So just go back into verse 47 with me real quick. It says, uh, Nebuchadnezzar falls on his face. He worships Daniel and he declares, your God is indeed God of God's Lord of kings and revealer of mysteries, since you were able to reveal this mystery. That's how chapter two ends. And this would be the point in the movie where all of a sudden there's a scene change and across the bottom of the screen, it says nine years later. And this is how chapter three begins. Verse one, don't miss this. King Nebuchadnezzar made a gold statue. 90 feet high, nine feet wide, and he set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Understand this, church. Whatever God moment Nebuchadnezzar had in chapter two is completely gone. 
And, and what's happening here, this is not simply that Nebuchadnezzar forgot his dream. This is willful rebellion against it. Like if, if what Nebuchadnezzar had said there in verse 47, if that was a true profession, what he would have done is he would have gone and built a statue in that plain and it would have had a gold head, silver arms and chest, bronze stomach and thighs, iron legs and iron and mixed clay feet. Like it would have been that and there would have been a stone next to it as a reminder to him, right, of God's vision to him. But he didn't do that, did he? What he does here is he builds an entire statue, solid gold, as if to declare, no, my kingdom will last forever and not even God can stop it. It's a rebellion. And it's not just a rebellion against a dream. This is also a rebellion against history. Understand, uh, it was on this exact same plane that Nebuchadnezzar's ancestors had built a tower, right? The Tower of Babel. Go back to Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel, Babylon. They had built a tower to reach to the heavens. And in that moment, in Genesis 11, it was in defiance of God. It was to make their names great. And Nebuchadnezzar, in the exact same plane, is doing the exact same thing. It's not just a rebellion against his dream. It's a rebellion against history. And so as we read this text, one thing that isn't clear is we don't know, is this image, is it the statue kind of made in Nebuchadnezzar's image, or is the statue kind of in the image of one of his gods? We don't know that. What we do know is two more things that are abundantly clear. Number one, this statue, Nebuchadnezzar, was the one who set it up. Six times over the next six verses, it will say, and Daniel will refer to this statue as the statue that Nebuchadnezzar set up. He set it up, and the second thing that is abundantly clear, this statue is enormous. 90 feet high, nine feet wide. Just to give you a little perspective, we have actually something in our own town that's of the same size. I went and took a picture next to the UNI Campanile this week. Uh, I gotta give like photo credits here to my daughter. Do we have the picture here, Holly? Got it? There it is, okay. So that was the best I could do. So I, I stood next to it because I am also enormous. Uh, so you can get some... <laughs> Uh, feel for what you like. Some of you in the back are like, I can't even see you. I'm that black speck at the very bottom. Okay, that's me. But, but I think like students, when you're walking across campus, when you walk past that Campanile this week, think about Daniel 3. This massive statue. So verse 2 then, Nebuchadnezzar sent word to assemble the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces to attend the dedication of the statue King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces assembled for the dedication of the statue the king had set up. And then they stood before the statue that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. A herald loudly proclaimed, people of every nation and language, you are commanded. When you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, drum, and every kind of music, you are to fall face down and worship the gold statue that the king Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And just to make sure that everybody do, does what he says, he informs them, and if it does not fall down and worship, uh, will immediately be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. Therefore... When all the people heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and every kind of music, 
People of every nation and language fell down and worshipped the gold statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. There's this scene in the book of Revelation when every tribe, tongue, people, and and nation is gathered in worship of Jesus and God. They're gathered around the throne, and everything about that moment in Revelation is right and beautiful. That worship was beautiful. This is not. This is wrong and horrifying what's taking place as every nation and language is assembled together around this statue, and they fall face down and worship it. What's going on here, okay? Let's talk about this. In a word, what's happening here, this is, this is what we call idolatry. Whenever human beings who are created in the image of God and are created by God worship something that is created, that is idolatry. Whenever humans who are made by God's hands worship something made by human hands rather than the creator God, that is idolatry. And this isn't just an ancient thing. Like idolatry isn't just something that, that happens like in years long ago or in other countries. Idolatry is, is everywhere. And we've, we've talked about this before, right? Human beings have this incredible ability to take almost anything and make it an idol. Right? We see that in our own culture. We've talked about this before, how there's like these internal pressures that we face, right? There's these sins that spring up within us where we are constantly being tempted to take things and orient our lives around, to take created things and worship them. John Calvin talked about our hearts being idol factories, just a sin always springing up that we would worship and serve created things rather than creator. That instead of orienting our lives around God, we orient our lives around what others think about us. That instead of orienting our lives around God, we orient our lives around our kids. And we take things that were good gifts, Kids are incredible gifts from God, but we begin to worship gifts rather than the giver of gifts. Or instead of orienting our lives around God in proper worship, we orient our lives around wealth, the accumulation of wealth and the false comfort and the false uh, joy that it brings. There will always be these internal pressures that we face, sins that spring up from within that cause us to be tempted to turn our attention away from the creator of God and toward created things. We know that. We've talked about that before. But this, this is a little different, isn't it? Because this isn't just internal pressure, though there was likely that there of, well, everybody else is doing it, and I don't want to die, and I value my life. Like, but there's an external pressure now taking place because there's a tyrant king over top of him saying, this is what you do. There's a cultural pressure, the world around Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Everybody is doing this. I just want to ask you, Christians, have you ever experienced external pressure to bow and worship something else other than God? Not just internal, I mean external pressure. Like college students, do you ever feel the pressure of like the college culture, right? Like if you're not spending your Friday and Saturday nights out on the hill, you are totally missing out on the college experience. And when everybody else is doing it, even people that you know from Salt Company, and you all of a sudden at that point then decide to draw a line in the sand and go, I'm not doing it anymore. I refuse to. 
Are you ready for that cost of what that's going to mean for friendships? There's an external pressure there on the college campus. What about for those of you in like your workplaces, right, where the, the external pressure of just workplace norms, you know, the corners you're expected to cut and the disingenuous way that you do business, all in kind of the name of just putting food on the table, right? You know, like that's the, the, the ends that justify the means, right? But if all of a sudden you decide to, in the midst of all of that in your workplace, draw a line in the sand, are you ready for the cost? Or, or here's another example. You know, and the growing tidal wave in our culture that's taking place of total affirmation and tolerance. One way that you can experience just the full fury of the wrath of our society. Well, here's like one example. If all of a sudden you've got a friend that decides they want to pursue a homosexual relationship. And they're convinced that this relationship is in step with God's desires for their life. You draw a line there and say, I, I love you, but that's not true. Are you ready for that cost? For us, it may not be as clear as a tyrant king and a 90-foot gold statue, but there are idols everywhere. And there are internal and external pressures constantly at work to get us to bow down to them. And in this moment, the foreheads of every person in Daniel 3 bow down and worship of this idol, all except for three. And so Nebuchadnezzar hears about this, and I won't go into how he hears about this. You can read the, the whole chapter. But I want to pick up in verse 13. Then a furious rage, in a furious rage, Nebuchadnezzar gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to him. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar asked them, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, is it true that you don't serve my gods or worship the gold statue that I set up? Then controlling his anger momentarily, he stops questioning them and gives them space one more time to, to participate. Now, if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, drum, and every kind of music, fall down and worship the statue that I made. But if you don't worship it, you will immediately be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. And who is the God who could rescue you from my power? If you got a pen, just underline that. We'll get back to that in just a bit. It's at this point in the story, I'm really bummed that many of you have actually heard this story before and likely know the end of it. Because if you can get back into that mode of like you're reading this for the first time, this is when your heart, like your, your heartbeat begins to quicken a bit. Like, what are they going to do? I mean, just, just pause for a moment. Like, like, leave out the fact that like, maybe you know the end of the story. Like, just like, immerse yourself into this. And I just want to ask you, like, plainly, Christian, like, what would you do if you were in this spot? What would you do? Because you know that voice of compromise. Like, I'm sure it's there for them. Right? Like, this is just a, a one-time deal. Let's just, let's just do this once. I mean, 
honestly, isn't my life worth like 30 seconds of compromise? Just 30 seconds of idol worship and I can move on with my life and I can ask God for forgiveness later. Like, we'll be fine. Like, we can do this. Right, everybody else is, is doing it. Or, and, or you could also reason like, but, but you know, like, I'll just go through the motions, but God knows what's going on in my heart. Like he knows where I'm really at and, and, and I can fake it and, and, and he'll, he'll let it go. And, and besides, uh, you know, you could reason this out. Like, like King Nebuchadnezzar isn't saying that I need to deny God. Like he's, I, I think I can keep my relationship with God. I just need to like worship this for a moment. Like, and I think that was probably even part of Nebuchadnezzar's rage is he was a pluralist. Like, why can't you worship my God and your God at the same time? Why does it only have to be your God? I'm sure they're sitting there going, I, and I'm sure right now my conscience feels bad, but I, I, I know in time it'll, it'll calm down. Like, you, you guys, you, you know that voice of compromise, right? We all know it. We all know it very well because we hear it all the time. And that voice of compromise, it never hits us like straight on. It's never like right in our face, but it's always just this like whisper over our back shoulder, right? Just like this persistent whisper, this dripping of a faucet, just constantly calling you to just, just take this, this other way out. There's another pathway here. You, you don't have to go that right. You could, we could do this. We could do, and I'm telling you, that voice, Christian, will not stop until you put your foot down and say, no more. Unless you plant a flag, it will just persist. What are they gonna do, all right? Jump back into verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to give you an answer to this question. If the God we serve exists, then he can rescue us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he can rescue us from the power of you, the king. But even if he does not rescue us, we want you as the king to know that we will not serve your gods or worship the gold statue that you set up. With, with all the other pathways in front of him, all those, like, those pathways of compromise, this is the path they chose. And you got to ask the question, why? Why were they just so entrenched? Like, this is the pathway. Simply put, Christian, they chose this path because they believed that what God said, he meant. Like when he said in Exodus 20, verses 4 and 5, do not make an idol for yourself, whether in the shape of anything in heaven, above, on the earth below, or in the waters under the earth. Do not bow and worship to them, and do not serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. When Moses came off of that holy mountain and brought down the Ten Commandments, this was the first one. And they believed that God meant what he said. And not only did they know the word of God, but they had oriented their lives around it. They took God seriously. That if God said, do this, they would do that. And if God said, don't do that, they go, okay, we're not going to do that. This was the place that God's word had in their lives. And they were willing to obey it no matter the cost. Can I just ask you, what is the place that God's word has in your life? Have you ever planted a flag like this in your life? 
I remember the first time I ever uh, planted a flag for Jesus. Uh, it was, it's kind of a, a comical moment. Um, I gave my life to Christ about 22 years ago. It was April 15th of 2001. It was Easter Sunday. After a string of really bad decisions and a bunch of regrets, I found myself in my Bible and found myself just with this unbelievable supernatural encounter with God where he called my attention to my sin and, and drew me to repentance. It was incredible. That, that day still sits as one of the greatest days of my life. It was a beautiful moment. I contrast that with the next morning because I woke up and somewhere in the middle of my morning routine, and I'm almost embarrassed to admit this, uh, but I'm just being honest. I ended up literally slapping my forehead. And, and this internal dialogue took place because I realized now, you know, Sunday behind me and it's Monday, I realized I would just given my life to Christ a week before prom which I don't know what your like prom ambitions were and stuff, but what my 16-year-old prom ambitions were not necessarily godly. And, and, and at that moment, it hit me. I'm like, oh my goodness, you idiot. You gave your life to Christ a week before prom. Why didn't you just wait a week? And then like next Sunday, you would feel like twice as bad and then give your life to Jesus. You know, like that, that was, like I'm not joking, that was the internal dialogue that I had. And, and I remember like that, that just rolling through my mind and instantly God putting this incredibly important moment before me, saying, you got to pick a side here. Are you going to choose the path of compromise, which I knew, I'm like, if I take that path now already this early into the game, I'm confident my life will be marked by compromise every day forward. Or... I can do the hardest thing maybe I've ever tried to do, and that is plant a flag here. And I think if, if God helps me to do that, there will be no going back. And that week, just covered in prayer, pulling in a number of great godly friends for encouragement, guys, I, I planted a flag. The first of many. And I, over the course of my life now, 22 years since then, have had to plant and replant flags constantly in my life. There are flags in my life that I have planted into the ground. Can I just ask you, have, have you planted any? Because you don't just wake up one day and have a moment like this, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, where you stand with Jesus in the biggest moments if you haven't been planting flags in the smaller moments of your life leading up to that point fighting the battles for inner holiness and obedience in the small things, all of a sudden gets you to the spot where you're ready when the moment is like this that you stand for Jesus. Are there any flags that you've planted in your life? Now go back with me to verse 18 because we see something incredible here and I don't want you to miss it. Again, if you've got a pen, there's some words to circle here. In verse 18, circle that phrase, but even if he doesn't. even if he doesn't. I don't think scripture has very few, like, like very many uh, other moments or other like phrases that are more heroic than this one here. Like of all the Bible, I think this is among like some of the most heroic words that we see humans speak. 
right? And it's not that they have a question about God's ability to save them. They just don't assume that he will. They have a very mature understanding of the sovereign will of God that they can look at and say, yeah, we know that sometimes God displays his supernatural powers, sovereign power in very dramatic ways. Like when he led the people of Israel on dry ground through the Red Sea that he had parted. We know that God can do that. God can do whatever he wants. But I think they also knew and had a mature understanding, but it's also sometimes in the will of God that he allows the people that he loves so much to also suffer. Likely even in their own experience, they could remember times of prayer when the Babylonians were laying siege to the city that they were living in, praying, God, would you deliver us from this? I know we've done wrong, but please forgive us and don't allow this evil to happen to us. And that prayer went unanswered, at least in the way that they particularly wanted it to play out. But this church, this, this is true faith. Like, don't forget this moment. Because this is what real faith looks like. See, true faith, I'll put this on the screen behind me. True faith is not believing in spite of evidence or is based on a particular outcome. That's not true faith. True faith is believing in spite of consequences. That's how you see it. That's how you can see a true faith. And what Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego are doing, they're entrusting themselves into the hands of a sovereign God whose ways are above their ways, whose thoughts are above our thoughts, and they're fine with that. They, they simply trusted God no matter what that meant for their lives. It's a picture of true faith. So then Nebuchadnezzar, Verse 19 was filled with rage and the expression on his face changed toward Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he gave orders to heat the furnace seven times more than what was customary. And he commanded some of his best soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the furnace of blazing fire. These Babylonian furnaces would look a lot like a train tunnel that was like closed up on one end. So kind of think about that. And this thing is hot. And so these men, in their trousers, robes, head coverings, and other clothes, were tied up and thrown into the furnace of blazing fire. And since the king's command was so urgent and the furnace was extremely hot, the raging flames killed those men who carried up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the furnace of blazing fire. And then King Nebuchadnezzar jumped up in alarm and he said to his advisors, didn't we throw three men bound into the fire? Well, yes, of course, your majesty, they replied to the king. And he exclaimed, look, I see four men not tied walking around in the fire unharmed. And the fourth looks like a son of the gods. There is an amen moment for sure. Guys, it's so easy when we're reading the book of Daniel to fall into this place where we end up worshiping Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Like they become the heroes of the story. Because they are not the heroes of the story. Right? The goal here in Daniel 3 is not simply that you would see the faith of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and imitate it, though that's somewhat noble. The greater goal is that you would actually see the God that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego worshiped and worship him. <laughs> 
that you would see who he is as he's laid out in this book, the great and sovereign and loving God that he is. Because that question that Nebuchadnezzar asked back in 15, right? I had you underline it, right? And who is the God who can rescue you from my power has now been answered. As Nebuchadnezzar is looking into the fire and he's looking for just that delight in seeing his power on full display that this small rebellion has been completely crushed and wiped out, he sees something else. And it undoes him. And while scripture itself doesn't kind of shed light particularly on like what exactly did the pagan king see? Was this Jesus? Was this an angel? We know this for sure, church. God had rescued them from Nebuchadnezzar's power. So verse 26, Nebuchadnezzar then approached the door of the furnace of blazing fire and called, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you servants of the Most High God, come out. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. And when the satraps, prefects, governors, and the king's advisors gathered around, they saw that the fire had no effect on the bodies of these men. Not a hair of their heads was singed. Their robes were unaffected, and there was no smell of fire on them. Nebuchadnezzar exclaimed, Praise the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He sent his angel and rescued the servants who trusted in him. They violated the king's command and risked their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I issue a decree that anyone of any nation, people, language, who says anything offensive against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will be torn limb for limb and his house made a garbage dump. He, he still doesn't get, like God doesn't need him to fight for him, right? He can take care of himself. But he goes on to say, for there's no God who is able to deliver like this. And then the king rewarded Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. God is the hero in this story. Church, one of the things I've prayed consistently this week for you is that verse 28 would be true of your lives, that people around you would would say that type of thing about you, right? I could just like put that verse before you and like put a blank in there, like praise the God of Dave or Emily or, or Sam, right? But praise the God of, they violated the king's command and risked their lives rather than serve or worship any God except their own. If you're taking notes, I mean, I think something for you to just ponder kind of later this afternoon even right now, it's kind of hard to have the space for it, but like, just finish this sentence for me. I will not bow down to dot, dot, dot. Or, I will not bow down when dot, dot, dot. Like those internal pressures the sins that spring up within? Have you drawn lines and said, I will not bow down to that? I know what God's word says. I know what God calls me to. I know that my worship is for him and him alone. I will draw this line and I will not go across it. Do you have those in your life? 
or when it comes to those external pressures of the, what the world around you is telling you you must do, maybe even those in leadership over you, whether in your workplace or wherever, like that you would draw a line and say, no, I, I won't, whatever that cost means. Can you finish those sentences? Guys, as we live, I mean, just like Daniel and his friends, like we too live as foreigners and strangers in a land that's not our home. And if you find yourself just like walking perfectly in line with everything, you're probably not living for Jesus. Actually, I'm not gonna, I'm gonna remove probably, just take that out of here, you're not. You're gonna have to walk against the cultural norms of our day. This world is broken that we live in. So it's not a matter of if these types of hardships will come or if you will ever have to pick a side. It's just a matter of when. But can I give you like the best encouragement I could give you, okay? Because it's not a matter of if you're gonna have to pick a side, but when. And it's not a matter of if you're gonna be ever in a trial, but when. As the greatest promise I can give you is one that God gives himself that there will always be another in the fire with you. No matter what happens in your life or where you go, there will always be another in the fire with you. The same God who made this promise years before Daniel 3 and Isaiah, hear this, like, like these words maybe were even in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's minds as they were entering into that fire, where God had promised, I will be with you. And when you pass through the waters and when you pass through the rivers, they will not overwhelm you. You will not be scorched when you walk through the fire and the flame will not burn you. The same God who made that promise is the same God who took on flesh and then took on the name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And then he, Jesus, stepped into the greater fire to save us, though we didn't deserve it. And then that same God made us this promise as well, that all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. No matter what you're going through or what you will face in the future, Jesus will never leave you or forsake you. There will always be, as you walk through fires in life, as you draw lines and say, I have to stand here, so help me God, he will always be with you. Our God is a God of presence. And if I could take one of those things and say, what would I rather have, God's presence or a particular outcome, I would choose his presence. But here's the beautiful thing, is that actually God is not just a God of presence, he is also a God of outcome. Here's what I mean. It's possible that someday I will be standing in a moment where if I choose to stand for Jesus, it will mean the end of my time here on earth. but I know what will happen next. There is a certain outcome for those who are in Christ. That though my time on this earth may come to a close, I will close my eyes in this world and I will open my eyes into a new one, an eternal one, 
where Jesus himself will be there. And he promises, he says, I will wipe away every tear from your eyes. Grief, crying, and pain will exist no more because the previous things have passed away. And he'll look at me and he'll say, I'm making everything new. And I will be with him. And God himself will be with me. And he will be my God. Church, you will be with him. And God himself will be with us and be our God and be with us forever. That outcome is sure and unshakable. And so we have a God that we worship who is a God of presence and of outcome. And so as Jesus said, you will have troubles in this world, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for being the hero of every story. And every one of us could walk around the room and talk about how you have as a hero has entered into our lives and done what we could not do for ourselves. And now you continue to play the role of a hero walking with us every step of the way. Thank you, Jesus, that you will never leave us or forsake us. That when we walk through our own fires, because we draw our own lines to stand faithfully with you, that you will be faithful to us to give us your presence, to keep us close beside you until you take us home to again, continue to live in your presence forever and ever. We love you, Jesus, and we praise you. This has been a message from Candeo Church. To learn more about us or to hear more messages, visit us at candeochurch.com.